Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Hello, everyone. My name is Will Cullen, Schwarzman Scholar Fellow at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today is Kelly Sims-Gallagher, academic dean and professor of energy and environmental policy at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Our subject today is climate finance and opportunities for the United States and China to accelerate low carbon development abroad. Dr. Gallagher, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's first introduce the concept to our audience. What is climate finance and why is it important for achieving global climate goals? Well, at the most basic level, climate finance is finance that is intended to support the low carbon transition. And by that, we mean transitioning from fossil fuel-based energy systems to clean energy-based systems, Um, and or uh, adaptation and resilience measures. Uh, so think, you know, building a seawall to protect your coastline from uh, sea level rise. And I think it's also important to remember that uh, when we talk about climate finance, there's the public finance, that which is um, paid for by governments um, and also private finance. And so um, we have a number of institutions around the world that we think of as more public institutions that that are providers of climate finance, like the World Bank or the Green Climate Fund, but also private capital is financing a lot of these transitions as well. In your recent Foreign Affairs article on the coming carbon tsunami, you highlight the importance of creating a new growth model that's low carbon for developing countries. What are the current barriers to the clean energy transition in these countries? And how might the United States and China help to create a better enabling policy condition in these countries? Well, I think we have to step back for a second and think about what are the development models that exist out there. If you are a developing country in Africa, say, and you're trying to look to other countries for models for develop, you know, economic development, and now sustainable economic development, uh, you could look at the United States and um, it's essentially, it's an industrial revolution, which of course really started in Europe, uh, but was adopted in the United States. Um, and then the big post-war growth period in the United States um, starting in 1945, So you could look at the U.S. growth model, but uh, to be clear, that was a growth model largely fueled by coal and oil and more recently natural gas. I think many developing countries in Africa and Asia now also look at China's development model, and that's become a term, the China development model. Um, And this is essentially adopts... um, what was previously termed the East Asian growth model, um, really which was pioneered in South Korea and in Taiwan and in Japan, you know, formerly known as the Tigers. Uh, And this too was a pretty carbon intensive development model. 
Um, it was really a state-led um, development model that relied heavily on investments in manufacturing um, and, in, and in some cases, very heavy manufacturing. Think iron, steel, cement, you know, infrastructure industries um, that rely very heavily on coal um, even still today. So the essence of the challenge is that we don't have a clean development model. Um, we don't have any evidence that you can achieve the very substantial economic growth and poverty alleviation uh, that China has, for example. We're in the space of really 30 years. Hundreds of millions of people have been brought out of poverty, have been given you know, good, improved, better jobs over time but it came at this tremendous expense uh, to the environment, both the kind of conventional environmental issues like urban air pollution and water pollution, but also of course, um, in terms of CO2 emissions, China went from not being in the top 10 of the global um, greenhouse gas emitters to now accounting for 40% or almost 40% now of global greenhouse gas emissions. So. You know, its its economic rise was accompanied by a very substantial rise in greenhouse gas emissions. Absolutely. Um, and so, to step back, what's the current landscape of climate finance, both in the U.S. and in China? Who are the main actors, companies, and organizations that provide climate financing abroad? And are these from the private or public sector? So that's a great question because this landscape isn't mirrored perfectly, uh, you know, across the two countries. Um, we have multilateral development banks, uh, and there's some intersection between the United States and China with the multilateral development banks. For example, both the United States and China um, are voting members of the World Bank, um, but some of those multilateral development banks uh, have a stronger influence from the United States than from China, and others have stronger influence from China as compared with the United States. For example, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which the U.S. hasn't even joined as a member. Um, and then we also have um, national financing agencies in the United States, a relatively new agency, very important tool um, for United States is the U.S. Development Finance Corporation, known as the DFC. Um, and of course, the United States has typically had uh, an Exim Bank, um, though it temporarily suspended operations during the Trump administration, um, but is now back in business. China has uh, what are known as its policy banks. These are state-owned banks um, that that serve the interests of the Chinese government. Um, and the, the two main examples are China's Development Bank, the China Development Bank, and China's Exim Bank. And a kind of different form of institution, I think, in China is its fam now famous Belt and Road Initiative, um, which is a, a major initiative intended to um, finance uh, infrastructure investments um, around the world in developing countries. And of course, there's also some geopolitical um, dimensions to this where China is um, 
fostering stronger relationships with these countries where it's making major BRI investments. The United States hasn't really had a, a counterpart to that um, until very recently when President Biden um, proposed um, a new initiative called the Build Back Better World or B3W. And so to follow up on that, do you think there are opportunities for the Belt and Road Initiative and Build Back Better World to either complement each other in developing countries to help accelerate financing? And what would that look like? Yes, well, we're in a very diffi difficult political environment um, between the United States and China right now. Um, in fact, in the you know 25 years that I've been studying China, uh, I feel like we're at the most difficult point in, in US-China relations at this at this time. So it's quite difficult to envision, you know, cooperative activities between the two governments right now. But if there were one area that I could pick where the US and China would work together, it would be on overseas development finance uh, for for this clean, low carbon, climate resilient transition. Um, and I think uh, in many respects, it would be a very rational and self-interested um, cooperative activity. Um, because first of all, China has a lot of capacity for overseas development finance, as we've seen through the Belt and Road Initiative, with hundreds of billions of dollars being spent um, since the Belt and Road Initiative uh, was established. Um, and the United States having extensive experience and many more decades of experience doing these types of overseas development investments um, and doing it in an environmentally and socially responsible way for the most part, not that the US record has been perfect. Um, and there's an overwhelming need uh, in many of these developing countries to have access to finance um, because it's not as if these countries necessarily want to have a carbon intensive development pathway, um, but they lack um, both the policy infrastructure, if that's a, a way to put it, and the finance to actually be able to achieve the transition. And I think the US and China could partner in these third party countries uh, to work on overseas development finance. If it proved, you know, too politically contentious to do that. Um, it's still possible for the US and China to be, you know, financing in parallel uh, projects in developing countries. Um, and maybe that could, you know, um, ensure sort of a race to the top um, in that the United States, which has already been, I think, motivated to develop an alternative to the BRI. Um, you know, becomes more active in helping developing countries with overseas development finance. Um, and the US Development Finance Corporation, in fact, you know, gives us this opportunity that didn't exist until recently with a 60 billion, with its current $60 billion authorization from Congress um, to really be able to mobilize significant new funding. Um, and they have committed you know, a large proportion of that $60 billion um, to go towards climate-related finance. I wanted to ask about a recent breakthrough at the COP26 
Climate Change Conference in Glasgow last year that you mentioned in your Foreign Affairs article about how developed countries came together to provide 8.5 billion US dollars to help finance South Africa's clean energy transition. I was wondering why is this successful and how might it serve as a model for other countries? I think the main reason why it could be successful is that it was a very pragmatic agreement. Um, so I think it's worth stepping back for a minute to, to sort of talk about the antecedents of global climate finance. Um, <clears throat> because as many people know, uh, in an earlier climate agreement, the industrialized countries around the world had committed um, to, to generate uh, $100 billion per year in climate finance from both public and private sources by the year 2020. It was acknowledged last year at the Conference of Parties in Glasgow that the industrialized world had failed to achieve that goal. And that was you know, very much perceived as a broken promise uh, by developing countries. Um, but I think one of the reasons why it proved difficult for industrialized countries to mobilize that funding um, was because uh, it was in large part being channeled to institutions that they didn't necessarily control, um, like the Green Climate Fund. Um, and um, I think for unclear purposes. So. What's nice about the South Africa deal is that South Africa said, we have these specific barriers facing us as we are trying to um, address the, the low carbon transition in South Africa. We have a state utility, ESCOM, that is bankrupt. Um, we rely heavily on coal and we need to create jobs for energy workers. So they very clearly identified their barriers and they said, we would be willing to make these transitions if you can help us solve these core challenges. Um, and so the, the, the deal that's been announced, um, which of course still has to be manifested into reality uh, is, is a very pragmatic deal to help bring ESCOM out of, uh, out of um, bankruptcy to do a job creation program um, and to begin to invest in cleaner forms of energy. You mentioned earlier about the kind of shifting political climate. Looking back on it, when you're serving in the Obama administration, the 2014 US-China joint announcement on climate change was a unique breakthrough that many scholars argue led to the global support for the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015. So currently, it, as you mentioned earlier, the political sentiment has clearly shifted from cooperation more towards competition. I'm curious to hear, given the current political landscape, if you think that the US and China could outcompete each other in developing countries to accelerate, accelerate financing, and if you think this would lead to um, better mitigation and larger climate action globally. Well, in the context of the, of the 2015 uh, joint announcement and the subsequent 2015 joint statement, um, in fact, I think the two countries were beginning to compete with each other on climate finance. The United States under the Obama administration made a $3 billion commitment to the Green Climate Fund. Um, 
And in response, the Chinese committed to a $3.2 billion commitment through a new fund that they said they would establish called the South-South Fund on Climate Change. Uh, one challenge has been that China has not publicly revealed how it has um, deployed um, its renminbi or dollars and however it's denominated in the context of the South-South Fund on climate change. Um, but that's an example of the two countries trying to, you know, compete in a good way to mobilize funding um, to support developing countries. Uh, and I think that that could keep happening um, in the future. Um, but I think we could go further than just kind of competing on the levels of funding and actually start to think about um, some cooperation models that would be acceptable you know, for both countries. So maybe it is establishment of a joint institution like a green development bank, you know, a global green development bank that could be co-financed by United States and China and of course other countries as well. Um, or we could look at different, you know, financial arrangements where there's co-financing um, from the United States and China, and maybe even also bringing in private actors um, to support different um, different projects in developing countries. I wanted to also ask about the role of the G20 Sustainable Finance Working Group. Right now, it's co-chaired by both the U.S. and China. What's the importance of creating standards and harmonizing those standards um, with kind of international norms? And how might the US and China work together on that? Yes, I was always personally disappointed that the United States didn't join the AIAB because I thought that was a lost opportunity precisely to work on this question of norm development uh, together. Um, so, and, and I should note that many European countries did join the AIIB um, and I think have worked with, with that institution um, on development of social safeguards and environmental standards in the context of AIIB's development finance. And in fact, AIIB was one of the first uh, multilateral development banks um, to announce it was going to not support coal plants and in a more positive way, uh, support renewable energy. Um, and I should also note that the, the new development bank, uh, otherwise known as the BRICS Bank, also made that commitment very, very early. Um, uh, so I, I really, I think that there's great potential, even if it seems like a politically daunting task uh, for the US and China to work together on a new institution together um, for a climate constrained world. You might think of this as sort of a renewal of the Bretton Woods institutions um, and maybe consideration of new institutions fit for, for purpose for the challenges we face today. Definitely, and I was also curious to hear your um, thoughts on the current geopolitical and economic tensions, including Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, and inflation, and, and how those larger global issues will um, potentially hinder 
global climate action and finance? I definitely think Russia's invasion of Ukraine and uh, China's, you know, the delicate dance that China is, is apparently playing, um, uh, at least in not condemning Russia's uh, invasion uh, of Ukraine makes things much, much more complicated uh, for the United States uh, in terms of US-China cooperation. And I also think that um, China's response to the COVID-19 pandemic has also complicated matters. I contrast uh, what has happened over the last two years with the uh, Ebola crisis, which I think many people have long forgotten about, but actually in the Ebola crisis, the United States and China began working together rather closely on standing up field hospitals in Africa and working together on the ground in these third party countries. Uh, but we haven't seen that kind of cooperation on vaccine development, vaccine distribution, um, and certainly not on transparent you know, exchange of information um, during the last two years. So all of these complicate, <laughs> complicate matters for sure. Um, but I think that most people recognize, you know, even pragmatists, that if we want to be able to solve the climate change issue, we have to have a modicum of cooperation between the United States and China, not only in terms of, you know, how they're going to reduce their own emissions as the two largest uh, emitters of greenhouse gases today, but also in this quest to support developing countries in financing, you know, this new development model um, and the low carbon transition. And going back to your own experience, um, traveling in China, researching in China, studying in China, what's the importance of the people-to-people -people exchanges and research involving research, involving policy support between the U.S. and China, and how does that make a difference in terms of climate cooperation? Well, I'm a big believer in people-to-people -people exchanges because um, it's always important to remember uh, that China is not some one unified actor, uh, but you know you have a diversity of actors uh, within China. You have the party, you have you know an administrative side of the government, um, and of course you have a very robust, uh, gigantic civil society. Um, and so certainly for me, in in all of my trips to China and study of China, I have you know, spent a lot of time, you know, walking through and learning about factories and industrial production there, um, teaching classes, getting to know other faculty and students, um, and of course, learning a lot. And this has a way of demystifying, uh, you know, um, a, a country that is uh, mystifying to many Americans, right? And I think conversely, um, the possibility of bringing um, Chinese students and scholars uh, into the United States offers those exact same opportunities. Um, and in the climate domain, uh, many, many of us uh, academics have interacted with each other for many years. Um, 
Uh, we've hosted scholars here at the Fletcher School and previously when I was at the Kennedy School at Harvard uh, who, who have gone on to um, serve important roles in the international climate negotiations. Um, and conversely, uh, you know, I've also uh, spent time and others um, in the US government have spent time uh, in China. And I think um, the understanding that is built up by these exchanges um, and the interactions between the two can reduce mistrust um, and kind of level set the formal negotiations between the United States and China, but also um, can lead to creative thinking um, because the two sides don't have to be quite so positional, but rather can think about how to bring you know, the interest, the mutual interest together um, to support, you know, positive outcomes for the climate. As we look towards 2022 and towards the COP in Egypt in November, what's on your wish list in terms of what you would like to see get done going into it? If you had, you know, a five minute talk with leaders in both countries, what would you tell them to do? Well, I think, um, as we look ahead to COP27, there's no question that that we're, we've hit sort of a, an inflection point in history, I think, precisely because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And it has made more obvious to Europe and of course to the United States uh, that, that these choices about the composition of your energy supply you know, can have really big impacts in terms of your own national and economic security. And I think China is also thinking about that too. It's watching what's happening with the sanctions. China had just agreed um, in the context of the Xi Jinping-Putin agreement in February to a new pipeline arrangement um, where it was gonna begin importing more natural gas from Russia. Uh, and China must be thinking about whether or not it really wants to rely on, on China um, in terms of importing natural gas. So I think what, what's gonna be at the front of everybody's minds is how do these two challenges intersect with each other? Um, this challenge of energy security and this challenge of climate security and trying to find um, pathways, technical pathways and policy pathways that can serve both goals, enhancing energy security and enhancing energy and climate security. So we might think about, for example, cooperation on heat pumps. We might be thinking about, um, you know, renewable energy coupled with storage uh, and battery storage. In fact, the, the Biden administration has just recently indicated it's going to activate the Defense Production Act um, in precisely to enhance US manufacturing capacity for battery storage. And so I think all of this uh, in a way is colliding at the same time. Uh, we have the, the new IPCC report indicating we have, you know, but a decade to really turn the, the tide if we want to have a chance of avoiding very significant um, climate change. And I think it's also clear there's a pretty short time horizon, um, particularly for Europe in, you know, making a decisive 
um, change in its energy systems uh, to enhance its own energy security. So before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to add? I don't think so, but I very much enjoyed this conversation and thank you for having me. Likewise, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.